I read an article here rec recently where a person was uh, that was writing this article. He was actually, um, in fact, I've, I've seen I've seen this a number of times probably uh, here uh, um, recently. I've, I've read articles like that before, uh, like the one that I just read. But it's basically this guy was basically dismissing all of Christianity and blaming everything, all of our troubles that we have in our world upon Jesus. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that, but um, it's just, it's becoming, at least in my, in my mind, it's becoming um, more and more common to see that kind of stuff out on the internet, out in the news uh, media, and, uh, you know, people have, sharing opinion pieces in, in here and there. And, but it, it, and in fact, it's just becoming the world that we live in. And, and whoever it was that asked for the prayer request for America and things, uh, I think that this is uh, one of the things that I pray about for our country. I, I think the frustrating thing that, that I think about as I read that article, at least for me, is that uh, there was a little bit of truth to what he was saying, this, this, this writer, what he was saying. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't mean that, that Jesus is to blame for all the troubles in the world, but I was struck by the fact that the disciples of Jesus have not always been what they should have been. We've, just, uh, we've not always done what we should have done. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we've, uh, you know, we did go through things like the Crusades, uh, the Crusade era. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we did conquer, we did try to conquer the world. We, we, we called it missions. It was not, oftentimes it was nothing more than forcing others to kind of comply with the ways of, the way that we, uh, our way of doing things. And, and so you look at some of that stuff and you say, well, you know, in some ways he's correct. And it's, it's kind of bothersome to me to think that the disciples of Jesus have, in fact, given him, this man, some ammunition to take a shot at both organized religion and then, in more particular, Jesus himself. And so I think in some ways he's correct. And it's, um, on the other hand, I think that he's outright wrong. He just simply is wrong. See, because I see the assumption of the article that I read this week is that any godless society would be better off, would be better than any godlike society. Um, he is assuming that if if we had no God at all, that we would be better off. And and the the problem with that is that 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 no one in this world lives without some sense of godness. Uh, it might not be what you and I might define as God, but Every culture has godness in it. It's, uh, it's really, it's just because it's the way that we're wired. It's the way that God has made us. It's, and I think that, so I think that in, in that sense, he's, he's totally incorrect. Um, he's incorrect, I also think, in, in this way, too. I, he, this fellow here who wrote this article, I didn't even write down his name, but he needs to, he, he needs to study history. He simply needs to do that and discover that, that most benevolent things that happen in the world today, or that happen in the world, though they may not have happened because of Christians today, most benevolent agencies began because of either Jewish or Christian heritage. Places like orphanages, hospitals, AIDS clinics, leper colonies, I mean, you name it. Uh, slavery was ended in, in Europe because of Christian influence. And I look at all of this stuff and I think to myself, well, what's the solution? I don't necessarily think that we need to go, you know, call, get this fellow to, you know, call him up, get him to come to our church so that we can, 
we can confront them and debate them and call them names. I do think that a solution, though, is a demonstration. What we need to, is, is for there to be in this world is a bunch of really uncommon disciples who are demonstrating what it means to be like Jesus so that the world, like this man, can actually see Christ in action now. Rather than trying to figure out what it was like 2,000 years ago to have been around Jesus, he simply needs to live among some people who look a lot like Jesus today. And that, for me, is the challenge. It's, in fact, the whole point of what we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks is, is trying to figure out how we can encounter a changing world with an unchanging message. The, the world is different. America is different. It's, but we have this changing world, and we encounter that in changing world, not with something different, but, but with that same basic message that, that comes from Scripture, the gospel. And so in the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at, at carefully at, at, at this uncommon Savior. It's a, it's a Jesus who really doesn't fit everybody's expectations. Now, the assumption is this, that if there's an uncommon Savior, then there has to be, there are going to be some uncommon followers, uncommon disciples. We, we're not going to look like everybody else. No, in fact, our, our faith is then going to, if we're an uncommon disciple, it's going to invade every area of our life. That's, that's what will make us different enough to make a difference. And so we're going to be trying to paint a picture of what it means to be an uncommon disciple by looking at an uncommon Savior in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to start with Mark chapter 1. I invite you to turn there. If you've got your Bibles, we're just going to look at the first few verses in Mark's Gospel, hopefully set the stage for the next several weeks here, walking with Jesus through Mark's journey, uh, his impressions of, of Jesus. But now, just a side note here. Mark was a close friend of, does anybody know? Peter. Peter. And maybe even a relative of the Apostle Peter. And this gospel most likely came from Mark's conversations with the Apostle Peter, uh, uh, Jesus' disciple. So, okay, Mark chapter 1, verse number 1. Here's what we read. Are we ready for this? I don't have a PowerPoint, sorry. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region of and, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is just an interesting be beginning, isn't it? Um, but it really should sound familiar. I mean, here it is, verse number one, the beginning of the gospel. It sounds a lot like 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you know, or at least it should, you know, in the beginning, God. And see, Mark's attempt, I think, is to say that he is giving us this sense of a, of a new beginning, and, and, and he ties it here, I think, very clearly in these opening chapters to a number of images that have those Old Testament roots. And so we know that, that John the Baptist, we know that he's the new Elijah. Uh, we see the prophet Isaiah. Uh, tied in with his prophetic word here, uh, which, by the way, doesn't come just from Isaiah. It also comes from Malachi and from the book and from Exodus. But we see a, a number of images here. We see the wilderness temptation and the wilderness experience and going out into the desert and all of that Exodus imagery comes along. And, well, frankly, any Jewish reader coming to this particular gospel would be struck by the fact that Mark is going back to the beginning and what he's doing is he is, in fact, starting over. And he gives us, he gives us some key terms. Uh, you notice that he calls him immediately, he calls him the Son of God. Ten more times in Mark's gospel, at key points, he is going to come back to that terminology. and He's going to focus on Jesus being God's Son. Um, he calls him right off the bat Messiah or the Christ. Uh, that's really the term. I mean... Well, we usually think of Jesus Christ as being his first and his last name. It's not. Um, Jesus, his name is Jesus. That's his name. Christ is a title. And it means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. It means the one who came for God to live for him. Messiah is going to show up at three very key turning points in the Gospel of Mark, where after Mark drops it here in the first chapter, he's not going to pick that up again, for several more chapters. But when he does, it's going to come at, at the lips of one who announces that Jesus is the Messiah. It will be an amazing discovery. But, but you notice where the emphasis really lies, don't you, in this first paragraph? It lies in the one who is mightier than I. That's really the direction that Mark points. He, I'm here, yes. But there's one, that's John the Baptist. I'm here, but there's one coming after that is mightier than I. But, but I want you to notice something else in that first paragraph. I want you to notice the willing response of the crowds. They're journeying from the various cities, you know, from Jerusalem and other places down to the Sea of Galilee it's, it's quite a hike down there, my understanding is, you know, down to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, it's, uh, you know, it's several hundred feet below sea level. Uh, that, uh, I think only the Dead Sea uh, coming off of that is probably the, the lowest lake, uh, uh, lowest uh, lake in the world. Uh, it's, it's a place where, well, it, it's just a journey. It's a journey is what is my point, to get down to there, but... But they go, and the text says that they willingly are baptized by John. And, you know, you, you think about that imagery. It's, it's well, to be baptized in, in, in a baptism of repentance, I mean, meant that you, you had to admit that you were a sinner. Uh, something rather unusual for people to do, but they did. They willingly came, and they submitted to this repentance. They submitted to this baptism. We'll go to chapter 1. Look at verse number 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, 
You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Verse 12, at once. Unfortunately, the word there probably will not ring like it ought to ring. At once. The word, really, it, it, it's immediately. Okay? Immediately, at once. It, 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 it occurs 41 different times in the book of Mark, and it gives you the sense of, of Mark's hurriedness. Immediately, the Spirit went out into the desert, he says. Verse 13, and, at, and, and, and he was in the desert 40 days. Uh, uh, obvious, uh, at least to me, uh, a reference or a, a focus or a resemblance of that 40-year wilderness wandering. He's, uh, he was in, in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Mark is the only one that tells us about the wild animals. I mean, this is a, scare, this is a scary place. It's, it's a frightening place. This is a place of trouble but he also reminds us that angels attended him. The amazing thing is, is that Jesus is, is so willingly obedient. Uh, he, is the, he is the sinless Son of God. He has no reason to go to the Jordan for baptism. He has no sins for which he needs to repent. There is no reason for John to immerse him in a muddy pool. But Jesus comes and willingly he obeys the voice of God. Well, if it's not for sin, then it must be to identify with his people. It must be so that other people can look at him and understood that he came to be one of us. And if we had to go through that experience, then he has to go through that experience and he, he comes, he identifies, he, he becomes one of us and, and willingly is obedient. And, and then he's driven into the desert where he's tempted and there's, there's wild beasts and, 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 and there's no victory announced here. What I mean by that is, is that Matthew and Luke, they're very clear to tell you that Jesus never did succumb to that temptation. Mark doesn't tell you that. Mark gives you a clear impression that this is a battle that is going to continue. This is an ongoing struggle. It's a, it's a temptation that, that doesn't end in the desert, that, that will follow Jesus all of his life. But the subtle reminder to us is that he doesn't do it by himself. Angels attended him. And then you come to verse number 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the news of God, Galatians said it said it this way. Remember, um, at the right time, you know, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son. Well, Mark says it this way: After John was put in prison, that's how we know that it's the right time. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And here's the good news: the time has come. He said, "The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news." Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, incidentally, when Jesus says, come follow me, literally the word is this, come behind me. 
It's, it's really an interesting term, that word that we've translated as follow me. It's, it literally means behind, come behind, it means behind me. In fact, that's really the rightful place for a disciple, isn't it? For a follower of Jesus is be behind him. If you're going to play follow the leader and, and you're going to let Jesus be your leader, there's only one place that you can be if you're going to be the follower, and that is behind. And Mark reminds us that a place, that the place of a, uh, that a, a disciple is to stand is behind Jesus. So come, he says to Andrew and to Peter, come behind me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately or at once, they left their nets and they followed him. They got behind them. That's really what the text said. Verse number 19, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay. Guess what word that is? Immediately. Uh, immediately they followed. He called, they left their father, they left their boats with the hired man. They got behind him. They followed him. He called them and they left their father's Zebedee in the boat with the hired man following him. It's just really a fascinating experience here. These men, by the way, they've met Jesus before. Now, you don't really get that in Mark's gospel because Mark's not going to tell you that. I mean, Mark is after the immediacy. Let's, you know, let's get this going. Let's get right to the story. We don't have any time here to waste. We've got some things we've got to say. Let's go. And so he says in the beginning, Jesus, the gospel, I, I'm going to tell you the story. John came. John's in prison. Now Jesus comes. Follow, come follow me. Well, there's been weeks I mean, there's men, maybe months that have passed. They've, they've seen Jesus before. I mean, just, uh, just take a look in John chapter 1. But now comes the call. Will you follow me? And the text says, immediately, they follow. It, it's just a powerful message, I think, in this text. And I look at these verses, and I, I walk down through this text, and I ask myself some questions. And here's, here's some of my questions that... They're really very simple. I mean, what do we learn here? And, and, and the lessons, I think, are pretty easy. We learn this. We learn, first of all, I think, that uncommon disciples follow Jesus without hesitation. Do you see that there? There is no hesitation here. These people just simply follow uh, that, that really is Mark's, that's his emphasis. He doesn't bother to tell you that they've had time to think about it. They have. But his point is, do it. Do it now. Don't hesitate. Follow Jesus. And so are you hesitating? That's the question. That would be the question that he's asking. If Jesus came and he saw you in your home or at your job or out on the lake fishing or, or wherever you happen to be, and he said, come, follow me, would the text of your life say, and immediately they got up and left? You know, I got a lot of things. I, I, I was thinking, you know, that, that they, they follow without any hesitation. And I sometimes wonder, you know, if Jesus were to show up at our church or show up in America, you know, you know rather than walking by the Sea of Galilee and he shows up some, you know, in Viroqua or around here and, and he says, come follow me, how many people would actually get up and follow him and then I, I, th I think to myself, well, would I wonder? If Jesus came in here and I didn't, re you know, maybe he says, come follow me, would I say, well, well you know what? We've got to have soup supper here. 
You know? That's right. As soon as we get that done. Without hesitation. That's the thing that I see. Uncommon disciples follow Jesus without hesitation. And I also learned this. Uncommon disciples follow Jesus willingly. It's not just without hesitation. There's this willingness about this. And, and the willingness comes, in fact, it comes in the fact that there's a price to be paid. This, this discipleship thing, uh, this followership thing that it doesn't really come, it doesn't come without some sense of loss. I, you know, I, I've never really thought about this until the other day. I was, I was thinking about this, and, and you know, when, when he says, I'll make you a fisher of men, I mean, I love to go fishing. I think some of you know that. I know Roy likes to go fishing. I, anybody else here like to? I know, yeah, Irvin likes to go fishing. Some, you do too? Okay. Um, but this last year, uh, some of you guys know, we, Mike and I and Nate, we went up to Canada. We're just... What a fantastic thing. We were catching some great walleyes up there and, you know, trying to teach them that experience because the walleyes up there are bigger. They're just nice. And so we're in there and you got to, you know, you got to get that thing out there and drag that little thingy jobber, you know, on the bottom, you know, and having it pop it up and down. And, and pretty soon all of a sudden that fish will come along and you got them, right? That's the way it works. That's, that's how it happens every time is that you, in order to, well, See, I didn't think about it before like this. But it's fatal to get caught. It's fatal to get caught. I've never thought about that. I've eaten a lot of fish. But I have never thought about the fact that if you get caught, it's fatal. You ever thought about that? I just thought about how delicious this fish is. This is really nummy. Jesus said... Come follow me and I'll turn you into fishers of men. And people who get caught, do you know something? It's fatal. There are some things that you just have to die to if you're going to belong to Jesus. There are some things that you've just got to give up. And, and the question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to get caught? Because there are some things in your life that will probably have to change. In fact, for these men, odd as it is, they... These men, they lose their careers, they lose their families. See, I, I don't think that God is call, calls every single person to. I, people want, I, I've had debate or talks with people about this, this kind of a language and this kind of a text, and they think, well, and, and basically my answer to them for what we're talking about is, I, I don't think God is calling everybody to be a preacher. That's not what he's saying. Fishers of men, so we see that and we say, well, that's the preacher's job, right? I don't think that's what Jesus does, is, or is call everybody to become a preacher. But I do believe that he calls every person to become a disciple or to become a follower, wherever they are at in life, whatever they are doing, to be committed to Jesus. And I mean, James and John, I mean, think about what they did. They still had boats, right? And Peter still had a boat because he, he went back to it. He still had a mother-in-law. I don't know if you really wanted to go back to her, but he still had it. But the point is that there's a cost to being a disciple. Well, I learned at least this one last thing, that uncommon disciples 
follow Jesus by sharing his, in his experience. It's, it's, it's not just that we follow without hesitation. It's not that just we follow him willingly. It's that we follow by sharing in, in his experience. I mean, I mean, he fished, we fish. He left his family. Do you, you, you didn't think of that, right? Jesus left his family. Not just James and John and Peter and Andrew, but, but Jesus left his family, and we, and we leave our family. Uh, we're tempted. Uh, he, he was tempted. We're tempted. He was treated with contempt. We're going to be treated with contempt. And he obeyed. We obey. That's really a message, by the way, that, that you see throughout all of Mark's gospel. Because the call to disciple, to become a disciple, is never an easy life. The temptation that Mark paints among the wild beasts was intended to be a clear message to anyone who would answer the call to follow Jesus. This is something that's going to be hard. No wimps need answer. I just think that the world has a warped view that being a Christian means that you're weak. It's for weak people who need a crutch. The article I read suggests just that. And I would challenge anyone to, to, who believes that, uh, who, who believes that to, to give Christianity a chance or to give it a try for one year and see who really is the weak one. Because I don't think you can follow Jesus, not really follow Jesus, and have that be weak. Well, what's the point? probably, how does this all fit together? What's he trying to say? There's a lot of stuff here, right? I think the point is really simple. Uncommon disciples obey Jesus. That's what it really comes down to. Uncommon disciples obey Jesus. You, you, know, how that's, you know how that's true? I mean, well, just come over here to, to just a couple of chapters, to chapter 3. There's a discipleship passage there that uh, I thought that we ought to tie together. We're not going get, to get to cover all of Mark's gospel, and so we'll kind of pick up some pieces, but I want you to listen to this text. Mark chapter 3, Jesus has now, got, now gone out, and he's begun to do some preaching, and he's in the midst of this confrontation over, well, of all things, Beelzebub. Verse 31 of chapter 3 says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus' response is, Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those, who seated, at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, or is my brother and sister and mother. You hear that there? An uncommon disciple obeys Jesus, does the will of God. You know, I've always thought it interesting, all the family connections that there are in churches, at least all the churches that I've been a part of. In fact, I remember our first church, I learned very quick when I was a young minister, I learned very, very quickly that, um, you know, I that there's all these family connections that are, that are there. 
So um, I learned very, very quickly that uh, to be careful who you talk about. Because that might be, you never know whether or not you're talking about somebody's aunt or their cousin or, or whatever. And in fact, I came, I came into contact, you know, did I say anything bad? No, 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 no. Just wanted you to know that was my cousin. <laughs> but I think that's normal. I mean, it, it's, it, I, I think it's just natural that in a church to, that, that, to find people that are related. I, I don't know that, this is the only church I've been a part of, that I don't know that we have a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of that. Blood relations, that is. Um... But something I have discovered about the church is that um, you're not an outsider very long. Uh, been, in, been in part of, uh, you know, you, you start out, uh, even I think, I think about when we moved, when we were in Yoda and we were going to that one church in, in Yoda, and, and it, it didn't take long, and all of a sudden you're, you're like part of the family. It doesn't take long. You're not an outsider. When, you, when you're a part of a church, you're not an outsider very long because you are my sisters and you are my brothers because the family of Jesus are those who obey him. They're not blood relatives. In fact, the blood relatives are the ones who are, out, who are wanting to know what's going on in this text here. The blood relatives were the ones who were not the believers, and I know that for some people, that's, that's really hard because their families, their, their blood family doesn't understand what they're doing. They don't agree with their faith. And so a good friend of mine, and he's been here, you've, you've met him before, but his mom just came right out to him and said, why, do you, why can't you just be normal? Just go to church and just don't put, create all these waves. Why do you have to be so fanatical about Jesus? My point is that we're family. brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we may not have the same blood running through our veins, but the same blood has washed over our bodies and our souls. Because in the blood of Jesus, we have been made a part of his family. See, we've, call, we've been called to become uncommon disciples, which simply means, in my understanding of it, is to be obedient to Jesus, to do the will of God. To be a real disciple, to be an uncommon disciple, the kind of disciple that you can that can put a lie to anything that we might read in some article or on some internet web page. That's what he invites us to, to that kind of discipleship that will make you so uncommon that the rest of the world will say, you know what, <laughs> if that is what a real Christian is like, that's what I want. That's what I want. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for texts like this, for opening it up, up just uh, to our lives, just some things that are the things that are, that are so simple and things we've maybe heard before. Um, God, the text of my life, and I, and I, I just confess this to you today, is I, I don't want to be, um, I, I don't want to pretend that I've got it all figured out. I just want to wake up simply every day and seek you and discover how to be more and more obedient to you every day.
And I pray for, for everyone in this church family that, that at, our, at the very core of our being that we would want to be that uncommon disciple that, that, that people would look at us and say, I want that for my life. God, we just simply want people to know Jesus Christ because he is our hope. And I pray in the meantime, as we, as we live out those lives, as we begin this new year, help us to become uncommon disciples, ready to serve you, ready to obey you. That that would be the text of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?